There's a sunny little country south of Mexico Where the winds are gentle and the waters blue The breezes are the only things that blow in the sun Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Carolyn Forche is here in the studio. Carolyn, thanks so much for coming down to the studio to talk today. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's lovely to see you, and thanks also for choosing today's songs. Can you say a little bit about why you chose the Peter, Paul, and Mary song to start us off? Well, Peter, Paul, and Mary were very supportive of our efforts during the prior to the war and during the beginning of the war to work uh, in the United States against a direct military engagement on the part of the United States in El Salvador. So they were activists. They were in solidarity with people who were uh, building the network for the sanctuary movement and Witness for Peace. And I got to meet them, and they wrote the song especially for El Salvador, and it was really lovely. So I thought, all right, that's the one we should start with. And did they write it after you spoke with them? Was that part um, of when you, you're reaching out once you return from... They spoke with all of us. Yes. I mean, they were they were very engaged, and I, I especially was moved to meet Mary, whom I always admired as a young person. And there she was, standing in a garden at a fundraiser for El Salvador, and so we got to talk. And it's nice to hear her voice now that she's gone. Also to think about how they were the real thing. They were singing these songs and touring in order to tell stories. That's right. And they go all the way back to the beginnings of the civil rights movement. And, you know, they were always showing up and they were always there. And it was fantastic. And after reading What You Have Heard is True, a memoir of witness and resistance, um, the, the book, your book that we'll be talking about today, I have a sense of a re renewed idea of what it means to actually to be there and the difference that would make because there are moments in the book where you're called upon to just your very presence by going to a, a, a seminary, I believe, to stop the military that are, well, not, to be there as a journalist, which you weren't, but no. to pose <laughs> as an American I journalist. I pretended to be a journalist, right? <laughs> but, but doing what you're called upon to do, whatever you could do at this, you were called upon to do a, a, a lot uh, in in your own way, Carolyn. Well, I really, I really owe it to the main character of this book, who is Leonel Gomez Vidas. The book is dedicated to him, and um, he is the cousin of the poet Clarivel Alegria. A lot of people might know her work because she's a prominent poet from Central America. And I had been translating her, and he drove up from El Salvador <laughs> to meet me in San Diego, California, because it was his idea that a poet should come to El Salvador or in that moment before the war so that the poet could travel around the country and learn as much as she could. And then when the war began, the poet would be in a position to talk about the situation to Americans. And I suggested that he bring a journalist. And he said, no, I don't want, I don't want a journalist. I want a poet. And the reason, I think, was that he 
well, first of all, he esteemed poetry, as most Latin Americans do, and regarded poets as important in their cultures, even though I explained that poets weren't so important in the United States. Um, but he also wanted someone who could write with what he called the language of the heart, you know, who could touch people. Um, and he also wanted the perceptions of a poet. He believed that journalists are very dedicated to maintaining their objectivity. And he wanted someone who could go beyond objectivity and really see uh, what's happening. And so he, he offered me an education at a time when I was 27 years old. I was on my own. I was single. I was teaching at a university. And I still wanted to do something more than I had been doing. I had a book of poetry out already, uh, Gathering the Tribes, and that's why he visited me. He chose me because of that book, which had been sent to him by... By, by your friend Maya. My friend Maya, who was Claudia Bell's daughter. She sent him the book with a little letter introducing him to me. And, and to say he would know why she had sent it to you. Yes. Or, I'm sorry, why she had sent it to him. Yes. I, I, you know, I never solved that puzzle, but I think she wanted us to meet. I think she was really kind of in, interested in matching us up together, which didn't happen. But, you know, um, it, we matched up, but not that way. You know, I think that I, th I think she was really the. She was the beginning of his interest, but he also knew that I had translated Clarivel, and so he believed that I was interested in Central America, and he was offering me a chance to learn more, to improve my Spanish, you know, to have a kind of reverse Peace Corps experience. And I was young and idealistic, and like many of the younger generation now, especially this uh, Generation Z, um, I wanted to do something for humanity. I wanted my life to mean something in that regard. And one thing I recognize in in students right now, high school and college students, is that same desire. Uh, and since I've spent my life teaching universities, I'm really happy to see it, you know, again, that um, dedication, you know, the young people from high schools trying to stop you know, assault weapons and also, you know, the young people from high schools all over the world uh, demonstrating against um, the depredation of the planet. And uh, so they're interesting to me. And I felt that way at that age. And the, the young people, the students now also being more global students mm -hmm. where to study abroad could mean anywhere that's right on this globe and they're also connected to each other yes. like you know in in the so, sphere of cyberspace uh, in a way that we never were and so that stories and and an organization can happen in new ways mm -hmm. and can travel so you started with the book starts with a scene that is out of chronological order what you have heard is true a memoir of witness and resistance out now with Penguin Press. What I love about that is it, it places us in this moment that I don't believe we ever, it's never referred to again, but once you're within the book, you understand how this moment was part of the everyday. So I think that's why somehow you chose it to represent this experience that you had over was it 
three years of returning to El Salvador? It was two and a half years. And, and then I, I went back after the war for the signing of the peace agreement. And then I went back several times uh, in the decade that followed my last trip there was in 2009. Um, but this, I I decided to begin before the beginning so that the reader would know what they were in for, in a way. And also, I really wanted, I wrote this so that the reader never knows more than I knew at the time. I tell the story as a journey, and so I don't stop and explain things, and I don't come into the present as some wise person who knows what's happening. I wanted the reader to be able to take the same journey and have the same experience as or as closely as possible as I had. Did you know that from the beginning when you started drafting this? No, this has been through four different versions. It took 15 years. It was the most difficult writing I had ever done. I didn't even begin writing it for 23 years after I got back. And then it was 15 years, and there are three discarded versions before I got to this one. Because, you know, I'm a poet. This is my first prose book, and I was—I had to learn a lot of things, and I had to learn by failing, you know, and and by d making discoveries about what what it had to be. And sometimes I didn't even know where I was going or how I was going to accomplish it, but I knew, I knew when I hadn't done it yet. I knew when it wasn't finished, and I knew when I had done a version that wasn't right. So, like, was the feeling that. Yeah, how could you? Is it possible to say more or no? Is it just sort of a well, thing? Well, you mean where, about writing the, it? Or, or, well, the three versions that um, well, exist <laughs> but aren't this one. Because what I will say is this: this is a moving, and uh, it's. I think I can't think of a better memoir that I've read. Oh my! Well, um, yes, I can tell you that in the first version. As with many beginning memoirists, I told too many stories. I didn't focus on this one. There, I, I wove in other parts of my life. That's not a good idea. And I also, um, having read a lot of memoirs, I understood that most memoirs of the last few decades uh, are memoirs of the protagonist narrator enduring adversity and somehow triumphing over that adversity mm -hmm. and drawing important lessons from it. In my memoir, I'm not really the main character. I'm the narrator, but there's a cast of characters, the most important one being Leonel Gomez. Um, and also, I don't triumph over adversity. No one does in this book, but we do come to some new understandings of what it means to be human together. So it, it's not... I even wondered whether I should call it a memoir. And people said, yes, you should, because it's a story from your life and it's nonfiction. So it seems the closest genre that you can have. So Well, and also maybe because you're the, the person who was able to name poetry of witness as well. After having this experience that I talk about in this book, write about in this book, um, I, I was... I, 
I had written a book of poems, The Country Between Us. In that book, there are seven poems that arose from my experiences in El Salvador. And those poems really served as the seeds for some of what is in this memoir. But after I published it, it was during the height of the beginnings of the war and and U.S. policy supporting the military dictatorship. And so my book was very controversial in the United States, controversial among poets because poets didn't want poetry to veer into political territory or current events that were somehow fraught or controversial, and also controversial because the the United States government uh, was upset with all the journalists and with me and others who, who were uh, describing a country that w- perhaps we shouldn't have been supporting. You see, and well, so the U.S. government wanted... They had a policy of supporting the military dictatorship. They called it the legitimate Salvadoran government. And so we were inconvenient because we were talking about what was really happening. And this was at odds with how the U.S. government was trying to depict the situation. Right. So then that led to trying to come to terms with what it means to be a poet and to live through something like that and write in the aftermath. Come to terms with it and be it while facing adversity from people who were also like poets that were people that you knew as well or your peers and your your field uh, or, or shared what you think might be a shared vision. It's so surprising now to think that people were actively against you. Well, I know. It seems very strange, but that was the case. And I'm very happy to say that the literary world, the poetry community within the literary world has has changed wonderfully during the last decades. And now they're very engaged. Uh, It's no longer... uh, a prohibition to to write about things that are um, contemporary and controversial and difficult, and it's not any longer. In fact, some of the most exciting poetry being written in this country is being written by emerging poets of color who have, for years, had their voices not heard and have not been prominent in literary circles, but now are writing of their experiences in their communities and of the suffering and brutality that they experience. And so I would say that um, that it's no longer at all uh, against literary culture to engage politically or to engage in human rights and social justice issues. Maybe that's more accurate to say. It's part of it. Today on Living Writers, Carolyn Forche is here. What you have heard is true. A memoir of witness and resistance. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Tex and Gina behind the glass and a studio audience of Michelle Pernia. We'll be right back. Ahora quisiera hablarles a ustedes y cantarles, por supuesto, también, canciones de bandidos. Este bandido fue un hombre que incluso pasó 40 días y 40 noches enterrado hasta la cintura en el agua en un túnel subterráneo para que no lo pillara. Logró salvar con vida porque era un bandido que atraía mucho a los demás 
logró salvar con vida y posteriormente ya en la superficie, bajo el sol asiático, oriental, luminoso y brumoso también de Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh logró la unidad de su país y conquistar una patria libre. A ese bandido, a Ho Chi Minh, a la libertad de Vietnam, fin alcanzada de esta canción. so glad you did. Today, Carolyn Forche is here. What you have heard is true. A memoir of witness and resistance. The book on the table with us. Carolyn's book in the making for the last 15 years, and it was also a long time coming. So Carolyn, can you talk a little bit about the song that we just heard? And thanks for choosing it for today's program. This was an interesting thing for me because I actually heard it for the first time in El Salvador. And um, and a couple of other songs that uh, Silvio Rodriguez uh, sang, and and also Victor Hara. But um, there are songs that were about Vietnam and the struggle in Vietnam. And when I was young, a, a university student, I was marching against the Vietnam War, and I I knew instinctively and intuitively that the war was wrong, and uh, but I didn't really know why. You know, I, I didn't understand the war deeply. I couldn't have, you know, answered very complex questions about why we shouldn't be there. And when Lionel came to my house in the beginning and talked to me for the first three days before he invited me to Salvador, um, he asked me if I'd understood Vietnam from the beginning, and I told him quite honestly no. And he said, would, would you like to see that from the beginning? Would you like to see what happens in that kind of situation from the beginning? And I wound up including parts of Vietnam here because I was married when I was young to Bruce Forche. He fought in Vietnam in 1967, and uh, he 
was had a very very brutal time there um and you know we're friends now and he he helped me to um remember his experiences and he gave me his photograph for the book but I was able to add that dimension to this because it was always in the background of our thinking in the beginning of the war in El Salvador. I have to remember that um, I arrived in 1978 January 4th for the first time and the Vietnam War had only ended in 75 so it was only over for three years. It was very fresh in people's minds and certainly in my mind and so, you know, th that's why I I wanted a song, one of the songs from Vietnam to be there. That, you know, there's a beautiful line, people have a right to live in peace, you know, which is the line that we closed on. Yeah, so uh, I, these were the songs that moved us when we were driving around and, you know, around the volcanoes. <laughs> you know, it was quite amazing. Yeah. Carolyn, would you mind reading the, from from the beginning of sure. what you have heard is true? Yes, I, I can do that. This So rather than begin when Leonel rang my doorbell, I decided to put this scene at the beginning. It is near the end now. We are walking in the rippling heat of a sorghum field, cicadas whirring to an empty sky. A man uncorks a water gourd. Another man leans against a spade. There is a woman here, too, wearing an aproned skirt over her trousers. Hard light and the dry rattle of sorghum seed heads. I'm holding a spray of seeds. One of the men takes Leonel aside and tells him something, a secret, like everything else. We get into the jeep and, without explanation, drive to another place not far from this field. The campesinos, rural peasants, would have walked, measuring distance not in kilometers but in hours or days. What are we looking for, I ask, and as always, he doesn't answer, swearing under his breath through the haze of smoke that hangs in the air where the corn had been growing. We stop near a cluster of champas, shacks made of mud and wattle. One of them has collapsed and smoke rises from it. Wait here, he tells me, but I don't wait. I had stopped waiting for him months before this, but he can't seem to break this habit of telling me to wait. Smoke is rolling like a shore cloud along the fields just above the blackened stubble. We walk, and when he stops, I stop. And when he continues, I continue. He palms the air to say, slow down or be quiet. I slow down and am quiet. When we reach the champas, no one is in them. No one is home. A large plastic bowl used for making the slurry that becomes tortilla dough is overturned on the ground. There is a child's T-shirt in the tortilla slurry. Behind one of the champas it appears that several hens have been held by their feet and whacked against a stone. They are lying on the ground, one of them still opening and closing its beak. A hundred or so meters more, and we hear the whine of flies the hissing and belching of turkey vultures, a flapping of wings like applause in the maize stalks as the fattened birds try to lift themselves. 
A flatbed truck follows at a distance behind us with three campesinos standing in the back. They are calling out to us or to the driver of the truck, but I don't understand what they say. I don't know what I had expected to see, but not the swollen torso of a man with one arm attached to him, a black pool of tar over his crotch. I didn't expect that his head would be by itself, some distance away without eyes or lips. The stench in the air is familiar, a rotting, sweet, sickening smell, human death. I bend down when I see the head, but I hear Lionel saying, Don't touch it. Let the others do it. At first, I thought they were going to find the rest of the man and place his remains in the truck. But instead, they gather the arms and hands, the legs with their feet attached, and bring them to the torso where it lies on the ground. They set the head on the neck where it once had been, then the three men take off their straw hats and stand in a circle around the man they have reassembled. They stand, and one crosses himself lightly. The parts are not quite touching. There is soil between them, especially the head and the rest. Birds nearby, hoping we will go away and leave them to this meal. The air hums. We walk. Why doesn't anyone do something, I think I asked. On this day, I will learn that the human head weighs about two and a half kilos. Thank you, Carolyn. So, yeah. Well, that's a very difficult scene, and there are others like it. Um, but... I want you to know that the book, um, Lionel is really carries this book, and he was a very mysterious man. People didn't know who he was. He had a small coffee farm, but he was also a world champion marksman and a Pan-American motorcycle racing champion. People thought he might be with the guerrillas because he had given some of his land away to the campesinos and he was always working with the campesinos' rural labor unions. But other people said that he might work for the CIA. So I had heard all these stories the previous summer when I was with Clarivel. Maybe they should have dissuaded me from accepting his <laughs> invitation, but they didn't. And so he's very funny. He has an incredible sense of humor. And he had a task before him, which was to educate a North American. And, you know, so he did that by putting me in situations and experiences and letting me have the answers to my questions by having experiences rather than explanations. And that was his that was his pedagogy was um that was his method and what a great teacher he was a great teacher uh but there are parts of this book that it might surprise you but there are parts that are very funny because he did have a sense of humor and we had a kind of repartee between us because i pushed back against him a lot and we had you know little i won't call them arguments i would just say that um I was a bit of a pill, as we used to say. Sometimes I would just, you know, be upset, and I was frustrated, and I just wanted him to explain what's happening rather than not answer my questions. And, you know, 
and I, I bring, also, in a, bring you to another experience. That's right. That's right. And they came right on top of one another. And they were at extremes, too. He would have me out in the countryside where people had nothing, really nothing. And then right away, he'd take me to the home of a wealthy person. And so, you know, I would go from really no water and no place to go to the bathroom and nothing to eat to air conditioning and pools and gardens, and then back to another situation that might be, again, very different. And that, you see, what he wanted me to understand were the extremes, um, was the disparity in wealth and in, in social conditions. And and that's how he produced that understanding in me. And the other dimension was that he eventually had me go to the U.S. Embassy. And the reason for that was that he wanted me to ask certain questions of the of the embassy staff, but he also he also wanted me to be seen coming and going from there so that people in El Salvador might assume that I had something to do with that building. And some more power. Yes, that I really had. And um, and also because he his method of staying alive was to remain mysterious and to come and go from different places and not anyone ever be able to really figure him out. And to talk to everyone. Yeah, he talked to everyone all over the country. He had friends all over the country and that saved his life and fear of his marksmanship also saved his life but also this cultivation of mystery so the book reads people say it's a little bit like a thriller I thought it was more like a mystery story but um but we don't solve the mystery um much like life yeah I know who he is I know who he was as a human being. I know who he was in his heart. I never solved whether he worked for the CIA or not. I don't think so. I did find out that he did uh, advise one of the guerrilla commanders. And so, you know, things have come out bit by bit. Um, I don't want to say more than that at this time, but I do, I do. What I did was I took the reader on the journey that I had. And I hope that I replicated it as closely as possible in a in literary language. And I hope that it has a number of different moods and not only horror. It doesn't only have horror, but it does have some of that. And I hope that people will have a glimpse of what led to the war, why the war was inevitable, why the war was necessary, and why it was a horrible disaster for 12 years. And people now are coming to our borders and they are fleeing really dangerous situation in El Salvador. The country was damaged irrevocably because of 12 years of civil war that the United States had a lot to do with. This book explains why that war happened, but also to know now that the people at our border are largely families with children, and they are running away from a situation that is so horrific and terrifying for them that anything they can imagine, you know, running through a desert with their children in their arms and getting to our border, anything that they can imagine happening when they reach the U.S. couldn't possibly be as horrible as what they were trying to escape. So these people aren't migrants. They're refugees, and they're refugees for the war whose beginnings I talk about in this book. And under international law, we owe them the right to seek asylum and refuge in our country, in this country. We do. We owe them, I believe, hospitality and care 
because we were party to the creation of the mess that they're living through. And um, so I'm obviously uh, very much opposed to this regime's policies on uh, regarding our, our border. The present, uh, the present administration. Yes, I call them a regime. I know this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, uh, don't be administration. sorry. I just wanted to, <laughs> no, no, I just wanted to um, clarify so we knew that it was the regime here and not That's the regime right. there. That's right. You know, the, the thing is that we, you know, we like to call our country, uh, our government has an administration. Other countries have regimes. <laughs> and dictators. Know. Yeah. So uh, the poor have housing projects. The rich have uh, suburban gated communities. <laughs> you know, so we call them different things. So I just like to reverse the language sometimes. You'll have to forgive me. But I really um, do feel strongly about the issue of the refugees. And we are a rogue state now, and we are in violation of international law. Uh, when Lionel came into exile, Lionel took refuge in the United States. He requested asylum at an airport. He was given paperwork to fill out, and, and he went on his way. Asylum cases used to be paperwork at the border, followed by two or three years while the case made its way through the immigration courts. And if the person was denied for some reason asylum, they would have another two or three years while their appeal was being considered. The criminalization of, of people requesting asylum is relatively recent, and it's illegal. The militarization of our border is relatively recent, and it's unnecessary. Um, so I'm, I'm really uh, I'm hoping that this book will be illuminating for people who might wonder who those refugees are. Let's let's take a short break, and we'll be back. Um, you're listening to Living Writers. Um, today on the program, Carolyn Forche is here. What you have heard is true, a memoir of witness and resistance. And what you're hearing today, this afternoon, is true. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Fue por tu amor 
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, so glad that you did. Today on the program, Carolyn Forche is here. Um, Carolyn, that song, thanks thanks for choosing that one for today. It's The book is emotional, and, and there's so much happening, and then these songs are full and vivid and so alive for you. I can see. And... It's really, that song brings it back. I, and we listened to that one a lot, and I went back there while you were playing it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for choosing and sharing the songs with us. Um, reading through uh, reading through what you have heard is true. Uh, it, it seems like music is such, is such a thread, and it, it brings you to this, the moment of both of you in the various vehicles that, that mm-hmm. you were in. <laughs> there are a lot of vehicles, and there are a lot of road trips, and, um, and we listen to music in cassette tapes, as you did then. You push it into the slot in the car, and sometimes we used it so that we could not be overheard or... And so it served as a cover, and sometimes we just used it to to lighten things because we were be, would, you know, have just come through some something really horrific, and so then we listened to some songs and try to recover. So we did. There are there's a lot of music in here. It's true. Yeah. Wait, well, and and thanks for playing them uh, for like sharing your 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 song list with us today um there's another character in here that i want to mention who is monsignor oscar romero yes. who was the um archbishop of san salvador he was um he was assassinated in march 1980 while saying mass and some of you may know that he in october this past october um of 2018 was canonized a saint in Rome. So he's now Saint Romero of the Americas. And so I, I knew him. And in fact, we, um, I credit him with saving my life because the week before he was assassinated, I had supper with him, Lionel and myself and some of the nuns in Divine Providence. And it was then that Lionel and Monsignor broke the news that I was leaving the next day and coming, t- coming back to the U.S. They, they said it was time. It had gotten dangerous for me. And if the Monsignor had not said it, it seems as though you would not have gone. I think I probably would have rebelled against Lionel. So. He wouldn't have been able to persuade me, but Monsignor said, you have to go. You know, He said, my place is with my people, and now your place is with yours. Um, there's a, a little paragraph I could share with you about the first time I saw him, um, and it was a re, a, an amazing blessing on my life to have known him, and he was a gentle, quiet, studious man, not a, you know, he wasn't a, a very um, outgoing and fiery person. This is how I first saw Monsignor Oscar Romero, from a distance, over the heads of the congregation in an unfinished cathedral, in his white vestments before a spray of microphones, giving a homily ending with a litany of the names of those disappeared or found dead that week, some of whom were in coffins lined up at the altar with windows cut into the lids to reveal their faces except the mutilated. In shafts of sunlit dust, 
sent from the louvers of the two bell towers, we stood, shoulder to shoulder, women in scarves or mantillas, men holding their straw hats, children sitting along the altar rail as the homily was broadcast to thousands of radios throughout the country, to machine shops, bodegas, to pickup trucks, and the battery-operated radios in the villages. When his homily, giving guidance and counsel, came to an end, Monsignor walked through the coffins with his aspergillum sprinkling holy water on the dead, and then he walked through the congregation, and we parted to make a path for him, the water sprinkling down on our bowed heads, as it had on the coffins. Later, I would understand that here the dead and the living were together, and those who stood alive before him, he was blessing in advance. Reading that that the line, your last line there, it still is. It's it's. Well, one of the things that I became aware of as time went on was that there were so many people who were working on behalf of the poor and who stood against the regime at great risk. Uh, they were doctors, lawyers, nurses, priests, teachers, students, a lot of high school students, a lot of college students, labor organizers, all sorts of people, uh, many of whom were killed by the death squads. The period I was there that I write about was called the time of the death squads because these paramilitary groups were operating in the cities as well as in the countryside. And at the height of it, when I was there, they were killing about a 1,000 people a month in the capital. And they would not only grab you and take you and put you in clandestine detention, or they would, I mean, basically they would butcher people and scatter their remains, you know, either as warnings, as warnings sometimes, and sometimes they would just put them at the body dumps. And there are other things they did, and those are described here. But yeah, it was really cruel. And so, but these people who were working, and many of whom I, I introduce in the book, and and was with, they really would give their lives for each other. I was surrounded by people who were so uh, ready to do anything that was necessary to protect others and to do good in the world. And I had never seen this before. I had never been around this kind of spirit, people who weren't, um, who knew that they might die doing this and it was all right with them. Um, they have a saying in the Liberation Church, uh, the Theology of Liberation Popular Church, um, they call it the preferential option for the poor, which means we prefer to stand with the poor. And if we do that, we must accept the fate of the poor, even if that means dying. So so I was actually with them for a short time of my life, and it changed how I felt about humanity forever and and for the good. I mean, in other words, it, you know, there were lots of really, I would say, evil people that we were contending with, but there were also some of the most luminous and radiant souls I'd ever known uh, in that country. And the Monsignor being maybe perhaps an obvious one, especially now that he's a saint. 
but yeah. so many of the characters in here. Um, the young woman, will you remind me of her name, Carolyn, where you were in one of the hotels that were the quote-unquote safe hotels where maybe the death squads wouldn't come, and there was an evening you were there, and um, and the death squad did come. You actually saw them from your back patio because the air was warm and you were outside. Um, it sounded like, and you, you crawled back into the room. She said, get dressed, Carolyn. And at first you right. thought you were you were going to... You were going to get dressed to leave, and instead, she said, lay on the bed, and we'll... Well, we saw the death squad car pull up, because we were lying on the balcony, smoking cigarettes. Just to There's take a lot the of smoking out. in oh, here. <laughs> I smoked a lot. We did in those days. Of course, none of us do anymore. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we were having cigarettes out on the balcony, and right under us came uh, a Jeep Cherokee, and the men got out with their weapons, and we knew they were coming into the hotel. So we didn't know who they were coming for. We got back into the room, and and she said, get dressed, and you must get dressed because we have to look like middle-class women. We have to be dressed up. And uh, and then she took the chain off the door. I, I talk about the rest that happened, but she took the chain off the door so it would happen fast if it happened, so we wouldn't have to wait too long. Anyway, it was really a, a, one of the difficult moments for me in that in that time and it also seems like it was one you didn't tell Lionel about he, he didn't as I went on there I did things on my own <laughs> and yeah. I didn't always follow his his suggested rules and every time I didn't follow his suggested <laughs> rules I got into trouble as he pointed out you know the only time you really were close to death was when you didn't listen to me <laughs> so that's a good teacher, too. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, today on the program, Carolyn Forche is here. What you have heard is true, a memoir of witness and resistance. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. You've got Living Writers. I'm Tia Hetzel. Today on the program, Carolyn Forche is here. Um, what you have heard is true, a memoir of witness and resistant, resistance. Carolyn Forche um, is in town. Uh, 
reading at Literati, we're so glad that you come through Ann Arbor um, as one of the places you return to, Carolyn. I really wanted to come here. I told the publisher, you have to send me to Michigan, and this has to be where I am. And I was born in Detroit, and my grandmother was um, an immigrant from uh, former Czechoslovakia, and she stayed with us often when I was a child. And so, you know, I sort of grew up in a small Czechoslovakia, the way that a lot of people who are descendants of recent immigrants do. And what was um, what was funny was in El Salvador, whenever I would get sort of scared or I would say, well, but I'm I'm from Michigan, you know. I, I'm not I'm not really part of this. I'm from Michigan, and Leonel would say, well, I'm from Santa Ana. None of this is going to help us now. You know? <laughs> but I was, you know, I was realizing that it was a long way from Michigan. And when I was really scared, I have to confess that I wished I was back in Michigan because I felt Michigan was a safe place for me, you know. And it was funny because I quickly lost that but you know it was an interesting thing I I'm I think I've always been grounded in my childhood here so and I was at the University of Michigan for a while doing research on women in the labor movement in the 19th century so um when I was driving here to the studio, I was noticing some of the buildings that I recognized. And, you know, the, it's different, but it's also s- somewhat the same as it was. Keep coming back. Yeah. Would you <laughs> please keep coming back? Um, so there was a um, you also had um, grandparents in. Was it Arizona uh, when you were um, not oh. your blood grandparents, but um, a, a grandpa? Yeah, son. grandpa. Good morning. When I was uh, young, I I had a, a death of someone very very close to me, and. Um, And I was doing some backpacking to try to get over this death. And I was in Taos, New Mexico, actually for a writing residency. And I met uh, an elderly Pueblo Indian couple. And I wound up, it's in the book, I wound up staying with them over a winter. And they helped me get over that death and many other things. And for the rest of my life, I I called him Grandpa Good Morning. And he... Um, he he really was important to this story, and for ways that I'll just you know you'll have to discover in the book. But well, and Leonel brought you to meet another elder yeah. when you were an elder, a Mayan elder. elder who was his mentor. And this Mayan elder gave me a sash that was a woven sash to take back to Grandpa Good Morning in the Taos Pueblo as a gift. So there's a little bit of that um, visit to Guatemala, too, here, and to that Mayan. Uh, There are mysteries in this book. They're strange. um, The calliope horse. Yes, the calliope horse. It was very funny because the... I shouldn't give it away, but I had a a very large papier-mâché calliope horse in my house in San Diego that someone had pulled from a trash on the curb in Old Town. Perfect for the living room. There I was in the living room. He was there, and and Leonel was fascinated by the fact that I had this red horse in the room, and later I learned why. There had been a prediction he had been given about a, prophecy. A, about a red horse. And I'll let readers discover that one, too, <laughs> because it was quite amazing. And, uh, yeah, the red horse is important. Well, you and a red horse in particular. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Well, Carolyn, with the, with the writing of this book, you, you said that you, you knew it when it was the fourth 
time through. Mm-hmm. What was it about the way that you were telling the story then? Well, you know, the first in the first version, I mean, when people write memoirs, they tend to put everything about their life in it, you know, and you can't really do that. I had woven too many periods of my life together, and I realized that I had promised Monsignor Romero and Lionel that someday I would write about what happened. And I realized that I needed to focus on these two particular years, especially, and the aftermath of those years and what those years meant to my life. But also, I really needed to fulfill the obligation, the promise I had made, that someday I would write about it. And so that is what I hope I've done here. And Paring it down to focus really on El Salvador helped me to find a way into the book. And then I realized that I had to go through the book the way you go through a tunnel without uh, very much turning back with no way out but through, you know, to go through the tunnel and to take the reader with me step by step. This is what happened, and then this happened, and then that happened. And so the reader never knows what's going to happen next. But, um, But I will read a little paragraph from the very end of the book. From the peak of the volcano, city and sea are visible, and the whole of the country as it shrinks to its place on the maps, small and poor beneath us, a country that had for a time grown large under the gaze of the world. Before the war, tapirs lived in the mountains' folds, monkeys and iguanas, coyotes and even jaguars, the wild cat of his prescient dreams. Hundreds of species of birds alighted here, a thousand of butterflies, and the streams ran clear through Wazapa's ridges to the river. No longer. Thousands of pounds of bombs rained into this forest during the war. White phosphorus and napalm also rained. So that might have been the reason he had brought me here just before the war began, and why he was silent all afternoon more than thirty-five years ago. He had said that he wanted to show me a beautiful place, to take a rest from the work we were doing, to climb to see as far as we could, but I now know that we were here for a different reason. Here, so that he could steady the far hills in his field glasses and read the terrain of a future free fire zone. Here to commit the mountain to paper, and then to say goodbye. I still have the paper on which he drew the mountain. This book, what you have heard is true, then is the promise delivered upon. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. um, It's sad because both, well... Today, neither Monsignor Romero nor Leonel Gomez are alive. Uh, Leonel did read half of it. He did read half of it, and he was very happy. And uh, the other other people who are in the book have read it, and they feel that it corresponds to their memories, too. So I'm, I think it's done now. I think it's out into the world, and I hope it will help young people, especially 
to know how that formation happens and also to help young Salvadorans in particular whose parents are hesitant to talk to them about what happened to them in their youth and why they brought them here or why they moved here, why they came here. I want the Salvadoran students who've come into my office all these years at different colleges and universities, uh, this is the story of maybe what some of their parents actually saw, and maybe this will help them. And, And Carolyn, as you said earlier, the people coming to the borders now, the families. They need us. They need us. And we are responsible. We funded that war. We paid for everything that happened with our taxes. And uh, as a result, in the aftermath of the war, when all of the peace agreement promises were broken and the, and the population was severely traumatized, especially the young people traumatized, you, you know, you have a situation of utter collapse of civil society. And that is a direct result of the war. So, and and the gangs there are they they really were formed in the United States and exported to El Salvador. There were no gangs when I was there. They grew up in American prisons and U.S. cities, U.S. prisons and U.S. cities. So, we we have a lot to answer for, and I think we can answer for it by welcoming the refugees and settling them in our country and letting their claims of asylum go through our courts in a legitimate way, in a fair way, because it is not illegal what they're doing. It is perfectly legal to cross the border at a point of entry and ask for asylum. And keeping them on the other side of the border while they wait for asylum is illegal. It's not legal to do that to them. So if we're a nation of laws, we have to respect our laws and utterly change our approach to immigration and the southern border. Carolyn, thank you for today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Come, please come back anytime. Sure. Or just, just call in. Okay. We'll always pick up the phone. I'll call in. Okay. That's um, fine. What You Have Heard is True, a memoir of witness and resistance by Carolyn Forche. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to Tex and Gina and to Stephanie for engineering, to Michelle Pernia. Thanks to all you for listening. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
quisiera hablarles a ustedes y cantarles, por supuesto, también. Canciones de bandidos. Este bandido fue un hombre que incluso pasó 40 días y 40 noches enterrado hasta la cintura en el agua, en un túnel subterráneo, para que no lo pillara. Logró salvar con vida, porque era un bandido que atraía mucho a los demás. Logró salvar con vida y posteriormente ya en la superficie, bajo el sol asiático, oriental, luminoso y brumoso también de Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh logró la unidad. Hello and welcome to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN FM Ann Arbor here on Wednesday, October 19th. My name is Jake Singer and I'm here with Vihan Iswar and Kellen Flynn. How are you both doing this evening? Uh, fantastic. It's an honor to be here as usual and I'm excited for another great conversation. And Let's Kellen. run it. Awesome. Well, we have a lot in store for you all tonight. We, there's a lot of sports news going on. This is my favorite time in sports because it is the first time that we pretty much have all sports happening at once. You have football in the midst of the middle of their season. Baseball is you know, coming close to the end, but still we're at the NLCS and the ALCS, so it's a very exciting time for baseball. NBA basketball just started last night, and we'll get into that in a little bit. And hockey's been going on now for now a week and a half. So if you're a sports fan, this is an extremely exciting time, in addition to college sports, of course, going on as well. So because of that, we have a lot on tap for you, and we're going to hit a lot of different sectors of sports. But I want to start with both of you here. NBA, the NBA season started last night, and we saw two incredible games in the Philadelphia 76ers against the Boston Celtics, as well as the Golden State Warriors against the Los Angeles Lakers. In both those games, the Boston Celtics won the first, and the Golden State Warriors won the second. So I just want to get gain a little bit of what you guys thought on both of those games. We can start with Philadelphia against Boston. You know, Boston, of course, loses their coach before the season starts. They're dealing with the interim head coach right now, and there's a lot of questions surrounding them, but Jason Tatum showed up last night to play, and their big three really put on a really good show against James Harden and Joel Embiid in Philadelphia. Well, first of all, let me say, it really is the best time of year. We are in the sports equinox right now that you talked about it, Jake. You get NBA and NHL back, NFL's in full swing, college football's in full swing. 